Are you ready this morning? Yes. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll look at verses 13 and 14. Now, division has never been deeper in our nation. We are in a time where lies and deception have become the norm, and we are inundated with them. We live in a state where the governor makes rules and then breaks them himself and then lies about what he did in his apology to all of us. The court that clipped the governor's wings a couple of weeks ago and said no longer can he amend laws, no longer can he initiate laws by executive order without going through the legislation, has now been overruled by a higher court and Newsom is free to act as a king once again legally according to this higher court. Listen, no matter what candidate any individual may support or endorse for president, the fact is our voting system has been compromised. Constitutional provisions have been violated. And we know if somehow that Donald Trump winds up being the president after all, there's going to be a civil war in this country. There's no question about it. And on top of that, last week, a well-known Calvary Chapel pastor said on his weekly program, watched by a, a hundreds of thousands of people, quite literally, said that people who support Donald Trump are like Lot's wife. All they care about is how good life is in Sodom. This came out of one of our own pastor's mouths within the Calvary Chapel system. He said nothing about Joe Biden's position on abortion. He said nothing on Joe Biden's position on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with the Iranians other than he plans to rejoin it and basically side against Israel. And apparently what he is saying is that he has a shared attribute with God who is the only one who can look upon the heart and tell the motivations and he can tell by how someone has voted for president. Now, right here today, in spite of data from the Orange County Health Authority, our governor has ordered outside only meetings of restaurants, theaters, and he has closed bars. <laughs> I'm okay with that one. And he has ordered churches to meet outside exclusively once again, while Costco, Walmart, Walmart, and Target remain unrestricted and wide open. So what do we do when the governor orders us to do something that one, either violates our constitutional rights, or more importantly, demands that we violate the word of God? What do we do? Does anybody know? I don't know. I'm asking you. What do we? Well, let's look to the Word of God and find some answers. Amen? Here's the first stop Daniel 6, 6 through 10. So these governors, satraps, thronged before the king and said thus to him King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, which was the traditional manner to pray in Babylonian captivity. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Now, many have pointed out that Daniel runs in a rather elite group of people in Scripture, one of which there is nothing negative presented us uh, about him in Scripture. We've heard about the sins of David, the sins of Abraham, and others who are great giants of the pages of Scripture of well, as well. But men like Joseph, men like Daniel, men like Nehemiah, there's nothing negative reported about them. Yet here he is acting in civil disobedience. So civil disobedience is not a negative. Would you guys like me to go back to Galatians or something? Where are you at this morning? 
It was not an act of civil disobedience. Now, are we living in a time to take such actions? Or is Romans 13 and elsewhere telling us, listen, we need to do whatever the government says, no matter what the government says. Are we living in that type of time as some espouse? Well, David said in Psalm 7, 10, and 11, My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God wasn't a lion. He is a lion. Amen? God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked. How often? Every day. Now, do we simply comply right now and wait for God to do something about our situation? What about being salt and light? Does not being salt and light imply a proactive stance? Don't we have to speak up? Don't we have to stand up in order to be a preserving and purifying influence in our society? I hope you know the answer is yes. And listen, one thing we know for sure is that if you ask those questions to any given group of Christians, you're going to get different answers today. So where do we stand in this divided age? What do we know for sure that we ought to do? Well, thankfully, there's some things we can look at that need no interpretation that speak for themselves this morning. And our title of our time through this very brief passage is simply, Now is the time. Now is the time. The time for what? Time for civil disobedience? Is it time for another lockdown? Is it time to move outdoors again? What exactly is it time for in this age of activist judges, in this age of state-run media puppets who are nothing better than a Tokyo Rose was in World War II? And listen, there are three things that now is the time for because it's always time for them. So are you ready this morning? Yes. Stand and read with me, please, from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. We've got a few words and a long message. Are you ready? Yes. Verse 13. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. And Lord, we pray that you help us in this. In light of the times and days in which we now live, that you yourself prophesied to us would be perilous as Paul penned those words in 2 Timothy 3. So Lord, teach us how to do these things, to be brave and be strong in the faith and to uh, have the courage to stand for you in these ever-darkening days and to do so with love. God, we recognize this is something beyond human capacity. So we need your spirit first to give us ears to hear it, and then empower us to do it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first thing we need to point out is that Paul is writing what we just read as the concluding words to a church in a city that was struggling with carnality. The cultural trends and norms of Corinth were making their way into the church. The church was abusing God's grace, and it has lost its way on spiritual matters and practices. I've told you before that a pastor from the 60s and 70s, a man named Ray Stedman up from the Bay Area, always referred to 1st and 2nd Corinthians as 1st and 2nd Californians, because there are so many parallels to what Corinth struggled with to what California experiences and struggles with today. Now, today we have people who refer to themselves as leftist Christians. We have others who say they are liberal Christians. We even have some today who claim to be Christian socialists. And all of these things, by definition, are a complete contradiction in terms. Listen, we're not liberal. We're liberated. We're set free from our past sins and made new in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, Paul says this to the same church we're reading about now. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. For you are still what? Carnal, fleshly. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like what? 
Mary men. That implies that when you are born again and filled with the Spirit, you are not simply a mere human being muddling your way through life. You are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore you have power, you have authority over envy, strife, and division, and yet it's made its way clearly into the church today, and we need to drive it out. Amen. There is one type of Christian today, and it's the same type of Christian that there's always been. That is a born-again Christian. Amen? Amen? Now, this behavior in Corinth was manifesting itself in the form of different groups creating alliances based on the man who led them to Jesus or the pastor of their church or the particular interpretation of their pastor of an issue that was being struggled with in the city. The examples are meat being sacrificed to idols. But what Paul was actually dealing with was sectarianism growing in the church or in other words, labels. I'm one of these, I'm one of those. Well, as I said, there's only one kind of Christian and it's a born again Christian. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. Do I need to say that again? I'm not sure what's going on here this morning. Listen, Paul says to the carnal and divided church, watch. The word literally means to stay awake. Figuratively, which is the application in our text, it means to be vigilant. Be vigilant at what? Standing fast in the faith is his first admonition. Now the Greek, if we were to read it directly from the Greek without the additional words to cause it to flow in the English language, what the statement is that Paul makes here in verse 13 is be vigilant, stationary in the faith. Be vigilant, stationary in the faith, or stand fast in the faith. Now, Peter said why we need to be doing these things. In 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, he said, be sober. Be, what's the next word? Vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. How? Steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, again, Peter gives us the same admonition as Paul, and then he adds, this is a global issue. The church is fighting this all around the world, always has, always will. What are they fighting? Satan trying to devour the church. Satan trying to get us off course by creating instability in the house of faith instead of stability that comes through the faith. So what's Peter say to do? Be sober. You know what that word means? Be sober. be sober. Don't be drunk. Don't be high. You need all your cognitive abilities to live in such a time as this. And listen, I can bear witness this morning that God still sobers up drunks today. Amen. He still sets people free from drugs today. Amen? Amen. Now, be sober, and then he says be vigilant. Same Greek word translated as watch in 1 Corinthians 16. And the reason to be sober and vigilant is because the devil is trying to devour the church. Now, listen this morning. I'm going to take the gloves off today. Is that okay? No, it's not that I've ever put them on, but, you know, figuratively speaking... When the governor of our state says we have to lock down again because of the COVID spread, and yet he himself goes to an indoor party he told us we all can't have, and he's at a party with members of the California Medical Association, and none of them wear a mask, all of them sit inches away for hours and hours and hours, he told us not to talk loud, good luck with that. <laughs> He told us not to sing, and yet this party got so loud that the governor was at with members of the California Medical Association, they had to close the doors because they were influencing the rooms next to them with all of their noise. And then the governor lies to the public about what he did. He said, it was an outdoor party. No, it wasn't. Pictures don't lie. People took pictures of the governor sitting at a round table with a dozen other people shoulder to shoulder for this meal that he later even said he paid for. What did he tell us? He said, you know what? I should have just walked by and gone to my car when we came from outside to sit down at this table. Well, how can you do that? You're the one buying dinner. <laughs> right? Unless he was going to dine and dash. Who knows these days? And you know what else? 
Some in the state legislature flew to Hawaii on the same day that the governor issued a travel advisory for all Californians. He says, you guys don't go anywhere, and if you do, come back and lock down for 14 days when some of his own legislature were on a plane going to Aloha. <laughs> you know what that tells me? Newsom's not afraid of the virus. He just wants us to be. So listen, in an age where there is clearly a move towards globalism and the vehicle to take our country in it has been called democratic socialism, which is another oxymoron, what is it time for us to do? Well, here's the first thing to take note of. And listen, our points this morning are to make a point. They're not our normal process of exegeting scripture and examining and harvesting points from them. But these points are to make a point. Now, I wish we realized this point before November 3rd, but we need to remember this going ahead because we are going ahead. We are going to move ahead. No matter who's on Pennsylvania Avenue, the church is going to stay strong. We are going to stand fast. Amen? But here's the deal. Now is the time to recognize politics has become a spiritual battlefield. Now is the time to recognize politics has become a spiritual battlefield. Now listen, as a pastor, I don't think any other pastor ought to be standing up saying the church shouldn't be involved in politics. Well, Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And when a wicked man rules, the people groan. So isn't an election a choice between rejoicing or groaning? Yes. It is when you have a society like ours. Absolutely, we need to make our voice heard. Think about what this last election was about. Think about what November 3rd was about. It was about two choices, kill unborn children or protect unborn children. It was about support Israel or support Iran. It was about promote individual hard work and responsibility or promote government handouts and irresponsibility or not taking control of your own or responsibility for your own actions. Listen, politics has become a spiritual battlefield. And we need to, listen this morning, we need to stand our ground, not give up ground. Right. Now is the time to be vigilant, stationary in faith. Now, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 14... Paul said this to the church at Ephesus, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able with, uh, to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God and you may be able to withstand when? In the evil day, having done all to stand. If we were to keep reading the armor of God and how it's described metaphorically, one thing we need to take note of, all of the apparel is for offensive tactics. None of it's for the back. We don't retreat. We charge ahead. Amen? There's no rump plate in that description. There's only things that we wear when we are charging ahead because the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Now listen, while this pastor who made this statement I mentioned in our intro made a grievous error, a grievous error, I don't want to make the same one. But I do believe we need to recognize there is a spiritual component to the political arena today that may not have existed in previous generations. Think about this. The separation of church and state, which is not in the Declaration of Independence, it is not in our Constitution, and it is not found in the Bill of Rights, it is not found in any founding document whatsoever, yet it's treated like it is. But think about the separation of church and state. It's a gate that only swings one way. In other words, the government is free to meddle in our business, but we have to stay out of theirs. That's what separation of church and state means today. Now listen, one of the COVID advisors to the supposed president-elect said what we need to do is a six-week national lockdown. We need to shut down every business. We need to shut down everybody. And they need to stay home for six weeks and we'll beat this COVID battle. Now, we also need, this man said, 
We need to make sure we pay everybody during this time. So we're gonna pay all the individuals. We're gonna pay all small and mid-sized businesses. And his belief is big business will be able to survive on its own. Now that's his plan. Now he also said, so we're gonna to have to borrow the money to do that. So let's get further indebted to China for us beating the COVID battle. Now here's the thing, and here's why I take issue with that amongst a host of other reasons, but here's the main one. He said this with full knowledge that depression, suicide, substance, substance abuse, and domestic violence are at record highs in our country right now because of the lockdown. Listen, I've done a lot of marriage counseling over the years, talked to a lot of people, and I'll tell you, within the top two of marital problems is financial strain. And when finances are tough, people tend to fight. And when people tend to fight, sometimes things get out of bounds. And it always has a tendency to create these particular struggles. We don't need more hardship on marriages today. Right. We don't need more financial difficulties inside the home. Now, here's the thing. Okay, let, here's what he's saying. Okay, let's do something that is going to drive more people to suicide. Let's do something that is going to drive more people to depression. Let's do something that is going to cause more people to self-medicate. Let's do something that's going to cause another increase in domestic abuse. And then let's shut down the one entity that can help at the church. Who's behind this? The devil's behind this. Principalities and powers are behind such thinking. And Isaiah says in 1311, I will punish the world for its evil, God speaking, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. There are terrible people in places of power today. But let me say this, God can save them. Amen. Amen. God can save them. So we need to pray for them as the Bible mandates us to do. Now listen, as I said, I ain't playing this morning, okay? The politicians who are attacking the church today are headed in a direction they are going to regret dearly when they get to its end if they don't repent. And now is the time for the church to recognize politics has become a spiritual battlefield. Are we supposed to be engaged in spiritual battle? Absolutely. Now, Paul tells Colonel Corinth, watch, stand fast in faith. And then he adds this, be brave and strong. Now, the Greek word translated brave means to act manly. You know it's okay to act manly? Men? You know it's okay to act manly? You know, haven't they been trying to blur the lines between the sexes over these past couple of decades? Haven't they been trying to say, you know, we're just the same, and you know what, we are physically different, we are genetically different, and I am thankful that my wife is different than me, because I don't want to walk around holding hands with some dude, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got no interest in that whatsoever. Yeah, I can see an amen over there, yeah. I don't know where the rest of you guys are, but me and this guy, we ain't walking with no guy. Now... I want you to consider something this morning. Strength means to increase in vitality. It's actually a word that's used to describe the process of becoming stronger. So here's what Paul's saying. Do things that require strength and they will make you stronger, which requires bravery. Now, it doesn't make it into many sermons in our world today, but I've always found it noteworthy that Revelation 21 lists a series of attributes of those who are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And the very first person thrown into the lake of fire is the coward. The coward. Revelation 21.8 says, The cowardly, unbelieving, and abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. How many have ever lied? Does that mean we're going in a lake of fire? No, this means that those who are unrepentant, who practice these things and even defend their right to do them, who want nothing to do with God, shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. Listen, which is the second death. Remember, as Christians, the second death has no power over us. Amen. 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 We might face the first death. I'm still hanging on for rapture. Yep. Skip the whole death thing. I want nothing to do with it, right? But we have no appointment with the second death. 
those cast into the lake of fire are unrepentant of things the Bible has identified as sin. And the word cowardly can also be translated as faithless. And here's why that's important. That tells us bravery and strength are part of the life of faith. And sometimes doing all to stand will be done in times like we live in, where people in positions of human power are puppets of the devil trying to shut us down, trying to silence us, or just flat out trying to devour us like Satan wants to do. And yet in Joshua 1.9, the Lord says to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? In other words, he's saying to Joshua, who just found out he's taken over from Moses, the one that was held in such high position and esteem by the Israelites, the Lord said, have I not commanded you? In other words, remember Josh, who's talking to you. It's me talking to you. He says, be strong and of good courage. What's one word for the phrase good courage? Brave. Starts with B, ends with rave. It's all you're going to get. Brave, right? He says, be strong and be brave. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Here's why. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now Hebrews tells us in 13, 5 and 6, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, the author of Hebrews is taking a broader biblical principle and applying it to one particular issue, and that is covetousness. So, in other words, listen, we don't need to covet what other people have because God's going to take care of us. That's the application that he's making there. But the broader principle is the Lord is my helper, therefore what can man do to us? That's true about everything, right? The Lord is our helper in perilous times. The Lord is our helper when the governor is trying to shut us down and oppress us. The Lord is our helper when our country is divided. Are you still here today? Yes. Now, listen this morning. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us, Amen. ever. Never going to leave us nor forsake us. And listen, one of the saddest things that I do believe has happened to the church in all of its history is when the church morphed from being the army of God to social justice warriors. Amen. And the truth of the matter is, listen, of course we're to care for people's needs. Paul told Titus, meet urgent needs. We're constantly reminded that we, not a, we ought to be conscious about the things happening around us but listen did we used to sing as kids onward social justice warriors <laughs> what do we sing onward christian soldiers why because we're the army of the lord right now listen this morning tune in we're not here to solve everybody's temporal problems the church is not the social services department Though we do care for needs, meet needs. We'll talk about that more in Galatians, about caring for the body and those around us when we return there. But the fact is, what we're here to do is not solve everybody's temporal problems. We're here to present the solution to everybody's eternal problem, which is they're headed for the lake of fire if they don't know Jesus and haven't been born again. Is that a biblical truth? Yes. yes. Now, let me drive the point home with Jesus as our example. Mark chapter 6, 34 to 38. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. So he bought them all new cars and cell phones. and Because why? They were like sheep without a what? They were spiritually lost. So he began to teach them. When the day was far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, the disciples, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 days' pays worth of food? That's what a denarii is, a day's wages and give them something to eat. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, we have five loaves and two what? Fish. Two fish. These fish were probably sardine size, and the five <laughs> loaves were barley cakes. What happened next? Well, the text goes on to say, Jesus fed from five loaves and two fish 5,000 men besides 
women and children. So potentially 15 to 20,000 people were fed with one little boy's sack lunch. Sounds like he knows how to take care of us. Amen. Amen. Now, notice that Jesus had compassion on them. So what did he do? He began to, come on, it was just a minute ago, teach them. Was his teaching going to fill their stomach? No. The disciples said, hey, these people are hungry. Send them away. Well, Jesus, no, no, no. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They need to hear what I have to say. You feed them so we can continue in the teaching, I believe, is what is implied by this. Now, could Jesus' teaching fill their stomachs? Could Jesus' teaching save their souls? What do they need more, a full stomach or a saved soul? What does our world need more now, a full stomach or a saved soul? You have to remember, Jesus went into towns of people, healed everybody in the town, drove out the demons from every person who was possessed, and yet weeks later or months later, some of them are yelling, crucify him, after he fed them and healed them. So listen, that's not the way to reach the world. We preach Christ and him crucified. That's the church's mission. And today, the largest church in our country is more worried about the stomach or fleshly appetites than the soul. In many churches today, the idea is we have to solve all the country's social problems to legitimize the church's message and purpose. Jesus didn't take that approach. He had compassion on them, so he taught them. Now, Philippians 4, 11 to 13, Paul says, Now, I speak, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? Now he defines the states that he had experienced. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. And in the famous verse in 13, it's often misappropriated, he says, I can do all, pointing back to what he just talked about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I can have abundance and I can have limited supply, and yet I can do either through Christ who will strengthen me. Was Paul a Christian? That's not a trick question. Come on now. Was Paul a Christian? Of course he was a Christian. Did he suffer need? Was he hungry sometimes? Was it because he lacked faith? No. It was because Paul lived out his life in a fallen world where sometimes things are going to be better than at other times. And in our times, things are described by the scripture as perilous. So what do we do? We be brave. And we be strong. We do things that will create strength in us and the spirit will provide the bravery or to be a man in order to do so. Now, here's our next point. Are you ready? After I give you this, you're going to think, did he start a different message? No, I didn't. But I'll have to explain it. But here it is. Here we go. Listen, now is the time to remember that God's love for Israel is the same for the church. Now is the time to remember that God's love for Israel is the same for the church. Now, here's why this seemingly change of course or point is important. We said earlier that our country's treatment of Israel is a spiritual matter and therefore important, right? Yes. Genesis 12, 3 still in the Bible? Yes. And the Abrahamic blessing that's spoken there is still true today, right? Yes. He who blesses you, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, meaning Israel, he who blesses Israel will be blessed. He who curses Israel will be curse. That's still true today, right? Yes. So we believe and express willingly and openly that messing with Israel is a bad idea. Right? Why don't we think that about ourselves? Why don't we think that about the church? Why are we so bold to say that about Israel, but we don't say it about ourselves? And here's why I say that. First Peter 2, you're probably thinking you better say why you're saying that. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, but you are a what? Is Israel God's chosen people? Is the church God's chosen people? One by birth, the other by faith. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That same phrase is used to describe Israel, that you may proclaim the praises of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people of God, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Are the Jews God's chosen people? Yes. Is the church God's chosen people? Yes. So why would God treat the chosen people as Jews different than his chosen people, the church? He doesn't. That's biblically impossible. He is the Lord. He doesn't change. Amen? Amen. Listen, think back. Has Israel been persecuted and threatened with elimination, but not been prevailed over? Yes. Has the church been persecuted and threatened with elimination, but not been prevailed over? Yes. So God's actions are the same on each of his chosen people's part. Now listen, the church hasn't replaced Israel. Right. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. Amen? Amen? Now, has God been Israel's defense? Yes. Has God been our defense. So we need to take the same thought processes and apply it to ourselves as the church today. Now listen close. I'm not saying it's time for us to stand up and defend ourselves or take up arms or military force or any of those things. But I am saying it's time for us to take a stand and say bravery and strength is the order of the day and you mess with the church and you're messing with the head of the church who is the king of kings and lord of lords and he is simultaneously the lion and the lamb. Amen. Now... I've danced around this. I've done all but say it flat out. Well, today's a special occasion. <laughs> Governor Newsom and those like him around the country better watch their step when they choose to attack the church of Almighty God. Amen. Just as nations need to be careful about attacking the nation of Israel. Listen, Israel has a defense system called the Iron Dome, and they can call it what they want, but God is Israel's Iron Dome. And God is the church's iron dome because we're both God's chosen people. Amen? Amen? Now, is it time for the church to remember that God loves us just as he, as he loves Israel at hand? Yes. Does it make more sense now that we need to take that same type of mentality that we apply to Israel and recognize? We're, <laughs> did I just say recognize? I think I did, but you know what I mean. Recognize that we're God's chosen people too. But it's just not an ethnic choosing. It's not a people to bring the Messiah into the world and author the scriptures through. It's where God's chosen people, his own special people who he bought with his own blood that Israel prophesied and through whom the Messiah came. Now, Paul concludes his letter with his typical greetings to those he is writing to from those who are traveling with him. And he gives one last admonition before he gets to his salutations. He says, let all that you do be done with what? Love. Love. Now, Ephesians 4, or 5 rather, 8 to 14 says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, of light rather. For the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Does that not imply thing, there are things that are unacceptable to the Lord? That's where you say yes. yes. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the... Didn't Jesus say we're the light of the world? Yes, yes he did. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In other words, be brave and strong, and the Lord will empower us and give us that light influence that the world needs. Now listen this morning. Socialism is an unfruitful work of darkness. Socialism is an unfruitful work of darkness, for as I said earlier, there is no place for God in socialism, there is only place for government. Abortion is an unfruitful work of darkness. Yes. Siding with Iran over Israel is an unfruitful work of darkness, for the Jews are God's chosen people yet today, brought back into the land for the purpose of the final disciplinary act of the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation, where one-third of them are going to look upon him whom they pierced, mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and recognize Jesus is the Mashiach bin David, the Holy One of Israel, their Messiah. 
Listen, shutting down the church is an unfruitful work of darkness. Destroying people's ability to support their families is an unfruitful work of darkness because God said we're to enjoy the fruit of the labor of our own hands. In other words, we ought to work. He told the church at Thessaloniki, listen, if somebody just messing around blabbing all the time and won't work, let them not eat. That's a good motivator for getting back to work. Now, it doesn't mean we don't help people who are in need, right? So you can email each other, not me. If you need to email me, that's dlandis at... Now, when we expose these things for the evils that way that they are, and they are evil, can we do that with love? Yes. Now, we live in a world where believing in biblical moral absolutes is viewed as unloving intolerance. And we need to remember what Paul said to a church in a city that was having many of the same battles that the church is having today. Be brave and be strong brave and strong enough not to waver in what we believe and what we teach now here's our last truth this morning listen now is the time for loving boldness not complacency and compromise now is the time for loving boldness not complacency and compromise now we need to remember what some of the issues that paul was writing to the church in corinth about listen to this in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, he said, and you can tell how stunned he is by the phrases he used, it is actually reported. In other words, he's saying, I cannot believe that in the church in Corinth there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality, it's not even named among the Gentiles. And then he exposes what it was, the evil. A man is sleeping with his stepmom. And then he says this, and you are puffed up. In other words, you're putting up with it. You're allowing it. You're not saying anything to this guy that you know is doing it. And you haven't mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So sexual immorality was rampant to a degree that wasn't even seen among the pagans, is what Paul says. Then he says in 8, 7, and 9, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge for some with the consciousness of the idol. He's talking about meat offered to idols and eating it. You have to buy it in the pagan marketplace or temple. He said, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, then their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. Neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And Paul's dealing with the am I my brother's keeper mentality. Yes, we're supposed to watch out for one another, right? We don't do things that stumble one another, right? And I've told you how many times I fought the battle of trying to finally get off the booze. It took me four years to get rid of it. And I'd had a period where I'd done, for, done good for a while. We were going to church at Calvary Costa Mesa. Remember, I came out of a church denomination that didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And I started hearing Pastor Chuck talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And so we called the church and said, hey, can you have somebody come over and kind of explain this to me? Because I don't get it. I'm totally unaware of any of this. And some guy came over, walked, sat with Terry and I in our apartment, told us about the gifts of the Spirit, explained it so beautifully and wonderfully. It was just awesome. We loved it. We prayed together afterwards. And it was a spiritual moment to be sure. And then we walked the guy out to his truck, and his truck bed was full of beer cans. And I was drinking again the next day. If this guy, if this guy who knew all that stuff can drink, well, then so can I. Well, no, I can't, and I shouldn't have. But I did. And this is what Corinth was uh, struggling with. They were becoming a stumbling block to one another under saying, you know what? It's not my problem. If somebody else has a problem with buying meat at a pagan temple festival that's been offered to an idol. If it stumbles them, that's too bad. Then in 9.24 and 25, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone, say everyone. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. 
Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Paul's making the same point. It matters how we live our Christian life. He says to Corinth in 10.14, My beloved, flee from what? Idolatry. So was idolatry a problem in Corinth? Yep. Yes. And then he says in the famed love chapter in 13.1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now remember, in Greek theater back in that day, there was no amplification system. So they would set these big uh, brass kind of pots or urns, if you will, on the stage that would vibrate. And in a sense, they would project the sound out to the back rows. And Paul, they were empty. They had no purpose sitting there by themselves. And Paul says, you know what? If you're calling other people out and doing all these things, but it isn't under, under the motivation of love, you're like a big old brass pot sitting on a stage that has no voice of its own, but it's just resonating sound. So here's where our point comes into focus. In his letter to Corinthians in 4.14, he says, I do not write these things to what? Shame you. But as my beloved children, to or I warn you. Can you warn other people with love? Yes. Absolutely. And the point is, speaking up and love is what we're supposed to do. Even when it's against the flow and thinking of culture, even if it incites name-calling and persecution, we still stay the course and we speak the truth in love. Now, we also need to remember that complacency is just one step away from complicity. We need to speak up. Our voice needs to be heard. And in Romans 1, 28 to 32, Paul talks about the culture that didn't like to retain God in their knowledge, and God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. And then he defines unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. Is this our culture today? Hello? They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also, what's the next word? Approve, Approve of those who practice them. That Greek word can also be translated as to allow. Are we supposed to allow evil things to advance unchecked as Christians? Nope. Doesn't that defy being salt and light in and of itself? And listen, the church is under attack today, but that's nothing new. Being lovingly bold proclaimers of truth, that may be new for a lot today, but that's what we're to do. And Paul's letter to the beloved Christians in Corinth gives us the example of how to do that. Now, one last thing and I'll let you go. For any who are mentally resistant to the idea of resisting Governor Newsom's anti-church, anti-family, anti-American edicts, who make the argument that the Bible says we are to unconditionally submit to those who are in authority over us according to Scripture, well, I submit to you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't. Daniel didn't. Paul, when they were getting ready to beat him for preaching Christ and him crucified, he said, Hold the rod off my back, fellas. I'm a Roman citizen. You put your hands on me, you're violating the law. Paul used his Roman citizenship to his own advantage. Now, let me add this. There's coming a man who is going to be the singular ruler of the world. He's called the beast in Revelation 13. We refer to him as the Antichrist. It's never a word that's used and associated with, with him in the book of Revelation. But he's going to tell the whole world, listen, you want to do business? You take a mark on your right hand or forehead that bears my name or the number of my name. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. We're going to cut off your head and we're going to kill you. Now, here's the thing. Should the saints, and there's going to be lots of saints during the tribulation, probably the biggest revival in human history is going to take place, or great awakening, I should say, will take place during the tribulation. A numberless multitude of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people are going to be beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ and the testimony 
uh, of his great name. So should they obey the Antichrist? Well, he's the one in charge. He is the governing authority. The Bible says all governing authorities are God-ordained. You know what that chapter means, or that verse means in Romans 13? It means the institution of human government was God's idea. So they need to carry out God's method of conducting human government. So listen, if you want to make the argument, you ought to obey what every authority says. You have to realize that taking the mark of the beast means you're going to hell. Right? So should people obey the Antichrist during the tribulation? No. no. Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel didn't obey those in authority. New Testament, Paul didn't obey those in authority. He used his citizenship to his own advantage. During the tribulation period, saints for the testimony of Jesus and the, and the wonder and power of his name are going to disobey those in political power at the time, and it's going to cost them their lives, but their civil disobedience is going to be a testimony to the name of Jesus. So, Again, not calling for us to take up arms or doing any of those things, but what I am saying is we need to watch and stand fast in faith. And we need to be brave and strong in the Lord. And we need to do all these things with love in our hearts for God and for the lost around us. This is what Paul is saying. And now is the time for all these things. Somebody say... Amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful again for your matchless word. We're thankful uh, for these exhortations and admonitions from the apostle as he wrote to a, a church in a city that was all messed up. And Lord, we recognize much of those things are, are going on today here too. So Lord, first of all, we want to pray for our governor. We want to pray that he come to faith in Christ and pray that you would wake him up before it's too late. And before discipline is necessary, for he has attacked your church, of which you said the gates of Hades would not prevail over. We see clearly he's playing for the other team. And Lord, uh, fighting against your church while he's allowing uh, other like things to happen uh, in the name of fighting this pandemic and all these other things. And Lord, we again don't diminish the reality that there is a, a COVID-19 and a virus spreading around the world. Lord, we also realize it's being used as a vehicle to advance an agenda that is against you. And so, Lord, we're asking you would help us to be brave and be strong and do the things that are right before you and to do them most of all with love in our hearts and a gladness, Lord, in our face and countenance as we engage those around us. So help us to that end, we pray, God, because it's not within the means of our flesh. Our flesh wants to fight and rebel and argue and do all those other things that we've been seeing manifested. So, Lord, we ask for the power of your spirit to prevail over us and for us to walk in it and to have the same love you had. Love others enough to look at them as a sheep without a shepherd and teach them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree by saying, Amen. Amen.